You're listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 9. Hi, welcome back to Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of PubK Group. As we approach the end of fiscal year 2023, Washington is once again facing down the prospect of a government shutdown at midnight on Saturday, September 30th, and there's a growing consensus among veteran Congress watchers that a shutdown is inevitable. Later in this episode, attorneys from Arnold and Porter will discuss how we got here, the chances for a last-minute resolution, how long a shutdown may last, and what contractors can do to weather the storm. But first, here are a few other stories that we're following. The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs has been meeting with industry stakeholders to obtain their input on regulations that will implement the Department of Defense's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. So far, the communications have been one way, as government officials are accepting feedback from industry, but without providing any insight into the upcoming rulemaking. DOD submitted the CMMC rule to the White House in July, with publication expected in November or December. Members of the House Veteran Affairs Committee have questioned VA's use of waivers to buy American requirements. The Office of Management and Budget requires agencies to justify their use of waivers when certain products or materials are not available domestically. However, lawmakers found that information posted online about the VA's waivers is vague and includes few details about VA's market research. Lawmakers also noted that VA has posted only two approved waivers, which they suggested was a remarkably low number, given that two years have passed since the passage of the Build America Buy America Act, which pumped $1.2 trillion into efforts to rebuild the nation's infrastructure. They also noted that VA's information hadn't been updated in six months. In a letter to VA, lawmakers asked the department to provide any documentation about its waiver requests and any evidence that VA has increased domestic sourcing in its procurement contracts. In a recent decision, the Federal Circuit reversed its precedent, ruling that the sum certain requirement for a claim under the Contract Disputes Act is not jurisdictional. The case started before the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals, which granted the government's motion to dismiss the appeal because the claim lacked a sum certain. On appeal, the Federal Circuit noted that it had previously held that the sum certain requirement was jurisdictional. However, the Supreme Court has more recently held that unless Congress has clearly stated that a requirement is jurisdictional, courts should not consider it so. Because the CDA is silent on the some certain requirement, the Federal Circuit held that it is not jurisdictional, though a claim lacking a some certain may still be dismissed for failure to state a valid claim against the government. In this specific case, however, the court noted that the government failed to invoke this defense until after years of settlement negotiations and a hearing had been held. Therefore, the circuit panel held that the government had waived its right to raise the defense. In Heath v. Wisconsin Bell, Inc., the Seventh Circuit revived a decade-old FCA case in which the relator alleged that Wisconsin Bell, a telecommunications provider, charged schools and libraries more than was allowed under the Federal Education Rate Program, also known as E-Rate. The decision is significant for several reasons. First, this is the first time the Seventh Circuit has weighed in on Sienter post-shooty. Second, the holding breaks entirely new ground on a specific issue, whether requests for reimbursement under the E-rate program are claims under the FCA. The Fifth Circuit previously held in Schubert versus Cisco Systems that they are not. The Seventh Circuit has now held that they can be, 
but it ultimately is for a jury to decide. The Fourth Circuit recently overturned a district court decision in a False Claims Act complaint in which the government pursued a very surprising theory. The plaintiffs asserted that Walgreens made material misrepresentations about whether patients met state Medicaid eligibility requirements for reimbursement. The twist? The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services said that the state's requirements were illegal. A district court held that Walgreens did make fraudulent statements that influenced the state's decision to reimburse its claims, but that those statements were immaterial because the drugs should have been covered under CMS's rules. The court dismissed the claims for lack of materiality. The Fourth Circuit vacated the dismissal, finding that the false statements did influence the state's decision to pay. The court declined to address whether the state's requirements were legal, focusing solely on the materiality test in Escobar. The panel noted that the CMS guidance on which Walgreens relied was published 11 months after the fraudulent scheme had begun, and thus it questioned the district court's conclusion that the state should have paid out the claims regardless of whether the patients met the eligibility criteria. Finally, the court reasoned that the act of falsifying records to feign compliance with the requirements suggested that Walgreens itself thought the requirements were material. Verizon Business Network Services, LLC, will pay more than $4 million to resolve allegations that it failed to meet cybersecurity standards for federal contractors when providing a secure Internet connection service for federal agencies. The settlement follows claims that the mobile carrier's managed trusted Internet protocol service didn't satisfy three required cyber controls for the Federal Trusted Internet Connections Program during contracts with the General Services Administration between 2017 and 2021. Verizon self-closed the issue and took a number of significant steps entitling it to credit for cooperating with the government, according to the Department of Justice. And finally, Congress has about three days to pass legislation that would continue to fund the government after midnight on September 30th, but the prospects look bleak. On Tuesday, the Senate was scheduled to begin consideration of a short-term continuity resolution to give negotiators time to hammer out the appropriations bills for next year, but there's no sign the House will pick it up. Joining the podcast to discuss what's happening and where it's all going are three of Arnold and Porter's legal and policy experts. Sarah Linder is a policy analyst in the firm's legislative and public policy practice. Sarah also joined us last month to discuss the prospects for this year's National Defense Authorization Act. Chuck Blanchard is a partner in the firm's government contracts and national security practices and a former general counsel of the Army and Air Force. Chuck returns to the podcast for the first time since our discussion about the Defense Production Act last year. And new to the podcast, Josh Alloy is a counsel for Honor Reporters Labor and Employment Practice. Our guests sat down with co-host Mike McGill to discuss the perspective from Capitol Hill, what government agencies are doing, how contractors should prepare for a shutdown, and how employment law may affect how contractors manage their workforce during a lapse in appropriations. Well, Sarah Linder, Chuck Blanchard, and Josh Alloy, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So we're sitting here on the afternoon of September 25th. Uh, We still do not have uh, the series of appropriations bills for uh, fiscal year 2024 from the government. And so today we're going to cover from a number of different angles the implications for contractors of what we're going to call a government shutdown, really a lapse in appropriations. The government doesn't shut down in full, but the anticipated lapse in appropriations. So perhaps, Sarah, we'll start with the legislative angle. What will be happening on Capitol Hill this week? Again, we're waiting for appropriations bill. We've got this fight in Congress. What do you expect is going to be happening on Capitol Hill 
And can you provide some insights into the state of play right now? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Well, it certainly has been an interesting few weeks on Capitol Hill. There has been a flurry of activities on developments since Congress returned from their six-week August recess. Kicking things off, uh, we saw last Sunday on September 17th, the House Republicans put forth a month-long continuing resolution proposal that had been negotiated by different factions within the Republican caucus that included a number of Republican priorities, including deeper funding cuts to most uh, non-defense programs, with a few exceptions. Um, But we saw really quickly within the release of that proposal that it wasn't going to have the the support necessary, that magic 218 number to pass in the House. So with that being said, House uh, leadership pivoted from their attempt to pass a continuing resolution last week and resume consideration of moving individual appropriation bills. Last week, we saw the attempt and failing twice to advance the FY 2024 appropriations defense bill, which is something that was blocked by members of their own party and often uh, is something that is politically more easy to get across the, the House floor. So it was certainly significant and just demonstrated the inner party disputes that are ongoing on the House side. So after that vote failed for a second time on Thursday, the, the House adjourned for the weekend uh, and they are expected to return tomorrow, Tuesday, the 26th, um, which only really leaves a handful of days to avert a government shutdown. As it relates to the plans for this week, the House is planning to revisit considering individual standalone bills of appropriations for Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, Agriculture, and also the State and Foreign Operations Bill. This was a demand of Republicans to to see individual bills move, but House Republican leadership is still pushing to try to revisit you know, the consideration later this week to put on the floor a continuing resolution that might range anywhere from 14 days to 60 days to keep the government open. But this is expected to also have deep funding level cuts below the current FY23 levels to try to, you know, help get the necessary Republican support to clear the bill on the House side. Even if that package is really dead on arrival to the Senate, including partisan priorities such as specific border security measures, the House position is that they are trying to not be jammed up by the Senate of getting a package sent over to them that they have to take up or otherwise they're in the position of shutting down the government. We also saw last week that after the House failed on its vote to move standalone bills, the leadership began to prep a legislative vehicle that could include a stopgap funding measure. We understand that Senator Schumer and Senator uh, McConnell were negotiating on a CR package with appropriations staff, but they have not yet come up with that final agreement, but we may see it early this week. You know, we have heard that there's the potential, their goal to try to pass something before the end of the week so that they can leave town and uh, leave leave the baton over in the House side uh, to take up that effort. But, you know, overall, what we continue to anticipate and hear directly from congressional staff 
is the anticipation that there will be a government shutdown. And really, the question remains as to the length of what that shutdown will be uh, and who kind of blinks first. Do you think, Sarah, there will, in fact, be a Senate bill that'll be passed this week? Would you say that's more likely than not? You know, it's it's certainly hard to say, uh, depending on what they come up with. Uh, there's certainly some complications in the Senate as well with a handful of different senators that can make things more challenging in terms of how quickly they can expedite the consideration of that package. But but that is certainly the objective to try to get something across the finish line by Friday. And then what are some of the political dynamics and potential complications to reaching an, an agreement, either some form of a Senate bill or a separate House bill? Well, there there are many to speak of, uh, but certainly, you know, one of the things that really began to cause concern over the, the likelihood of a standoff this fall on government funding uh, was after the debt ceiling agreement was finalized this spring. Members of the House Freedom Caucus were very displeased with the agreement that the Speaker and the White House had reached on the debt ceiling funding level top line numbers and the fact that it was passed with assistance from Democratic votes. Um, So there are factions of the Republican caucus that are pushing not only for much deeper spending cuts to rein in funding levels below the debt ceiling uh, agreed upon levels, but then there's also additional complications as it relates to uh, members that are opposed to additional funding for Ukraine. There is the Biden supplemental uh, request for disaster relief funding. And of course, a key priority for House Republicans is seeing border security elements included in some package, some of which are definitely very partisan and would not be well received to pass in the Senate. When the House returned in August, Speaker McCarthy also announced the kickoff of a impeachment inquiry into President Biden. This intensifies political dynamics in Congress, given that most folks in D.C. recognize that ultimately a a deal will require cooperation from both parties with a Democratic-controlled Senate. And of course, there's very little wiggle room with a narrow Republican majority in the House. There's also on the table threats to oust Speaker McCarthy if he makes a deal with Democrats for not uh, meeting specific funding conditions that they have outlined. And so that complicates all the bipartisan talks that are ongoing amongst moderate House Democrats and, and Republicans, including vulnerable Republicans in Biden won districts that would like to see some alternative stopgap package and don't want to be blamed for a government shutdown. So it'll certainly be uh, an interesting week this week. And there is no no shortage of different challenges, both in the House and the Senate. So say we get to next week, we, we do have a shutdown, we do have a lapse in appropriations, and recognizing this is an unfair question. But just to look forward, How do you think things might play out in Congress at that point? And then what comes next and what might happen for the remainder of the year? Well, there are certainly some hardline positions uh, of certain members in the House that particularly Republicans that believe that they will be able to successfully extract policy and funding concessions in the event of a shutdown and may continue to hold out for a matter of, you know, a few weeks. 
However, you know, we've seen in prior shutdowns that public opinion of who is to blame for a shutdown certainly does influence those dynamics during the 2013 and the 2018 shutdowns. But there's also adding to it the political pressure that they'll start to see from federal employees and military personnel and those that are impacted by not receiving pay during a government shutdown, just how that will hopefully have cooler minds prevail to to reach some agreement. I think that there's a possibility that we could be heading for a shutdown that could last, you know, longer than the weekend. It certainly could be upward of a week or more. And ultimately, they may pass a continuing resolution that is extremely short heading into just mid-November or December, in which we could be facing a second standoff if they're not able to reach agreement on the omnibus appropriation spending for all the other 12 spending bills. There's pretty stark differences between where the House is and the Senate is. Um, And just as a reminder, one of the things that's top of mind for appropriations members is that the debt ceiling legislation put in place a mechanism that would enact across the board 1% spending cuts if Congress doesn't enact all their appropriation bills by January 1st of 2024. So this is something that would affect both defense and non-defense, something that each side has a stake in avoiding. Usually the the real deadlines for Congress all play out right before the holidays. Republicans are adamant that they are trying not to have a huge omnibus spending package year end, but the precedent has certainly been trending that way over the last several appropriation cycles of that's how they have been able to to get their work completed. Great. Thanks, Sarah. So so would you peg in terms again another unfair question, but in terms of the likelihood that there is a deal this week to avoid a shutdown. Would you say that's 10, 20% very low odds at this point? I would put it in single digits. In single digits. And then do you have a sense, assume then it sounds likely we're going to have a shutdown, which is the the sense in town. What what would you say, and won't won't hold you to this, but what would what's the likelihood that it lasts for more than say three weeks? I think that it would be rather unlikely for it to go beyond a two-week to three-week period. It's it's certainly not out of the, the realm of possibility. We did see a record, I believe it was upward of over 30-plus days in the last shutdown. Uh, but when there are a number of constituents and military personnel and employees who are not receiving pay, in multiple pay periods, uh, that certainly does have a political impact as well as other economic impacts that will result from a shutdown that will put increasing pressure the longer it goes for Congress to reach some agreement, even if that is a very, very short-term continuing resolution to reopen the government. Great. Thanks, Sarah. And Chuck, I know that you have experience. You, You served as the general counsel of the Air Force during multiple government shutdowns. So would appreciate your perspective from that experience on what's happening right now within the government. How are agencies within the Department of Defense, civilian agencies, what's your sense of how they're preparing for the shutdown? Well, I think right now the the main issue is planning and, and really two two different aspects of it. One is trying to figure out who will continue to work without pay, who are essential workers. And, and DOD 
uh, every military member will continue to serve. Uh, they would they will not go home. So they have the great honor of being essential, but the great disadvantage of not being paid. And most political employees, because of the odd way our statutes set our salary, we will also uh, continue to serve. And then, uh, then, then it's usually a hodgepodge of other career people as well. And it really is trying to make sure that you can we can do the the, the bare essential. It's really a, a largely a political decision as well as a legal one because you. On one hand, you want to make sure the government continues to operate. On the other hand, having a large number of people showing up in the office and a lot of people in the Pentagon parking lot does not look good. So when I when I was there, uh, we erred, if anything, on the side of leanness rather than having more people there. And, and again, we have an advantage the EPA doesn't have. We have people who are in uniform who are expected to serve regardless. The other aspect of it, besides the people part, is trying to identify what message to send to contractors. Because as you, most people know, um, most contracts are already have obligated money. And, and so just because there's a shutdown doesn't mean that the, the obligated money can't be spent. So for a lot of contractors are, you know, who have an obligation and they're, they can continue to work the next few weeks using already obligated funds, you know, can continue to operate. The challenge is that other folks may very well have, you know, be nearing their obligation and they'll need to be told to, to stop work. Also, there are some folks that may have lots of obligated funds, but their job is to embed their employees to assist, for example, ID departments at the, at the Pentagon or food service at the Pentagon. And when there's no one there to call a help desk and if there's no one there eating in the Pentagon cafeterias, even though the money is already obligated, it makes no sense to spend that money. And so those folks may be very well get stop work. So there's a really detailed analysis for each contract as to which contracts are, are going to be told to stop work and which ones will continue to move forward. And some contracts might very well be told to stop work because the people who need to supervise the work they're doing um, are going to be furloughed. So on the contract side, it, it's a lot of identifying at a very granular level uh, what message just to send uh, to contract. Uh, the other uh, issue that's getting lost in all this is in the Pentagon, uh, there's a concept called new starts, which are new new weapon systems or new programs. Uh, and for the last year, you know, we've been the DODs been working to put this in the appropriation bills. They, you know, they can, they're trying to get, they probably, they're just, they were anticipating the potentially starting a new program in October. So they've been doing some preliminary work. And one consequence of, of a delay of even passing the appropriations bill, even if there's a continuing resolution, is that these new stars don't get started. Even if there's a continuing resolution that occurs on Friday, that does not allow new starts. Uh, that only allows continuing of existing programs. So the other kind of planning that's going to be moving forward is one, identifying the must-have new starts so that they, they can be included in any continuing resolution or any compromise. And that, I'm sure that's or those conversations are already occurring. Uh, and second of all, you know, doing the worst case analysis of what will occur um, if this does not happen. That's really interesting, Chuck, to hear you explain the analysis that goes on within the government on a contract by contract basis. Is it really dovetails nicely, I think, with the advice that we provide to contractors, which is generally going to be to ask to focus, if you really boil it down, on two questions. 
Are you contractually required to continue performing? And if so, are you able operationally to continue performing? And if the answer is yes, then generally contractors are expected to and should continue performing absent unusual circumstances. But then to, to, as it does on the government side, that requires a contract by contract and maybe in some cases a contract line item or CLIN by CLIN analysis to figure that out. And so with respect to the first question, whether performance is required, you'd assess has performance been authorized and has it been funded? So for fixed price contracts, that's generally going to be relatively straightforward. For cost reimbursement and flexibly priced contracts, you're going to look at, well, was it funded? And then has that funding been exhausted? If the funding is exhausted and the contractors complied with its notice requirements and the government's declined to provide additional funding, then normally performance is not required and would be at the contractor's risk. Now, there's nuances to that, but that's going to be the general rule. You also would say, if you're, if you're, are you required to perform? Another question you'd ask is, has the government issued a formal stop work order from the contracting officer that's authorized to issue that order for the contracted issue? And Chuck, Chuck, you explained sort of some of the things that go into that decision, uh, and they're planning right now as to whether they're going to issue that orders. And then generally, contractors shouldn't assume that informal direction is a stop work order. They should look for formal stop work orders from an authorized contracting officer. Don't assume that statements from a program manager or a program team are enforceable necessarily against the government without more. And then don't assume, depending on how long this lasts, assuming there's a shutdown, don't assume that a temporary lapse in payments under your contract, that's a funded contract, but just for administrative issues because there's furlough or there's an issue with uh, the electronic systems that payment is short, don't assume that that is a de facto stop work order or an excuse to stop performing. And then the second question, again, whether performance is possible. And so you look at things, contractors are going to be looking at things like, do they need access to government facilities to perform services or to, to deliver products that are owed to the government? Do they need government employees to be on the job so they can provide the services to them? It's a service to government employees. If the government employees are furloughed, can they still perform the work? Are they still needed? Uh, do you need government employees to participate in some aspect of the work or overseeing it, like testing or demonstration? Do you need authorization, formal, informal, to proceed between phases of a statement of work or a performance work statement? Um, you may be required to perform, but the shutdown may hinder your ability to perform. And so that's another issue that contractors are going to look at on a case-by-case -case basis. And Chuck, to send it back to you, because again, this is how the, the government's operations directly affect the contractor's operations and what they're allowed to do and what they're expected to do. In addition to, to what we've already talked about, do you see any other likely impacts of the shutdown on the operations at the Department of Defense and, and other agencies? Yeah, I think one complication is that this tends to be a headquarters heavy kind of workload. And so what you'll find is that the contracting officer for your contract at Wright Pat Air Force Base is probably going to be completely in the dark. Uh, hopefully before they're furloughed, they, they get the answer. But there is going to be, in my experience, communication snafus because there's some tough decisions being made, you know, at the headquarters level. It doesn't always get it translated to people. And by the time it gets translated to people, the people who are supposed to give the message may not be there. So part of what contractors may need to do is have a, you know, the, the contracting officer is the one who needs to give the, the direction 
Uh, but barring that, you may actually end up having to, to find somebody else. One advice I would give to people is try to get some direction right now, but understand that your contracting officer might very well be in the dark. Now, the government's been through this enough that they probably have a pretty good idea how they're going to handle it, but that, that's going to be a challenge. I think, I think one big impact can be on stuff that you don't really think about, but for example, Every Sunday or Saturday at football games, people expect Air Force planes to fly over. Mm -hmm. um, it's just sort of part of the American tradition. Uh, that's going to stop. There may very well be uh, recruiting efforts that are underway. They're going to stop. The national parks are likely going to be stopped. And then there's some very complicated uh, issues that deal with some of our military depots. So some of those depots are funded by a working capital fund. So they, for a while, will probably have more funds available because the, uh, of the way they're funded. And so at some point, they may be able, they may be continuing to work, which means a lot of people who support the depots might continue to get work. But over time, contract funding will lapse. And also, at some point, the government may want to you know, reprioritize within contracts from one clin to another, and that, that may occur. And then the other complication is that by federal law, at the end, military members will get back pay and civilians will get back pay. Contractors are not guaranteed of being back pay. In fact, um, there's no legal entitlement. So absent action by Congress, and given how hostile some members of Congress are to this whole activity, you know, contractors may end up, uh, who, are, who are asked to perform for national security reasons or for emergency reasons to show up, you know, provide employees, even though they're, they're, they don't have appropriations, they may very well find themselves not getting reimbursed. But Chuck, if a contract falls within, so, so we're talking now about contracts that aren't previously funded, so there's not obligated funding right. on them. Of course, then you've got to deal with the implications of the Anti-Deficiency Act. Of course, the department has guidance uh, and is authorized to enter into new obligations for accepted service, to basically commit the government to certain a, a narrow scope of accepted uh, services. And so your sense is, if the department commits to those contracts, though, th those within, as long as that is followed and that, that the, they're authorized by a contracting officer or someone else yeah. that's authorized, that, that those are enforceable contracts. Federal employees who are furloughed, so they're not working, will get paid. Contractors whose uh, appropriations have lapsed, who go home and don't have income, have no guarantee of income. That, that's what right. I'm talking about. Right, right. And that that's a great point, especially if the funding, if it's a fixed price contract and that increases the cost, then you're dependent on a request for equitable adjustment to cover those additional costs. And if you're on a cost reimbursement contract and you're exhausted the funding, then you'd be dependent on the additional funding unless you have a situation where, based on direction from authorized contracting officers, that they've waived a ceiling or you have some other argument along those lines. As I think about the high-level advice to contractors, I think, again, they need to plan on how they're going to address each contract and in address contingencies related to anticipated funding gaps for flexibly priced contracts, and then government availability issues. And that plan, that contingency plan needs to account for employees, subcontractors and suppliers, 
and other resources that are dedicated to those contracts. You need to, as Chuck said, communicate with contracting officers and program teams, get their approval, ideally ahead of time. At the very least, try to identify a point of contact who will not be furloughed, who will have authority to make decisions during the lapse. Look for stop work orders. Make sure that employees' points of contact understand to look for stop work orders and be prepared to respond to them promptly and address impacts to employees, staff, other personnel, subcontractors, suppliers, and so forth. Be prepared to flag actions or inactions of the government that could constitute uh, an implicit or de facto stop work order and make sure that you take the steps to try to confirm that so you're not fighting about it after the fact and then document the impact of the shutdown on performance, schedule, cost. You wanna segregate additional performance costs costs for delay or idled employees and resources. And with that, that obviously one of the impacts, the significant impacts, Chuck, as you were saying, is you have idled employees. You've got to think about the possibility of recovering that. Josh, I'd like to turn to you now and talk a little bit about the implication of the shutdown, the anticipated shutdown on contractor workforces. So if there is a shutdown, are there any cost-saving measures that contractors you would think should be considering or anticipating? Absolutely, Mike. Certainly, depending on how how long a shutdown lasts and when it occurs, um, contractors should start thinking about potential cost-saving measures as it comes to employees. And this is particularly true, I think, as you've noted, if there's a stop work order or if um, the government has stopped providing funding under a particular contract, if government facilities are closed down where a contractor is performing its work, um, or if there's some other reason why the contractor can't perform its work under its contract. It's going to have to do something about employees who typically they're paying who suddenly don't have work to do. And so there are a variety of cost-saving measures from sort of the very basic to the more extreme that companies should be considering. They should be trying to think through these, these possible measures ahead of time and, and planning for some of them. They need to make sure that they're going to comply with federal and state wage and hour laws. Department of Labor has some regulations and guidance when it comes to some of these issues, particularly wage and hour issues, as well as furloughs, which we've mentioned. One of the simplest measures that a contractor, or most contractors are going to be looking into is, is there something else we can be doing with employees on a contract where they can't perform work under that contract? Is there another contract that might still be ongoing that is not subject to a stop work order where we can transfer their, those employees? Do we have work not under a government contract that we can shift some of these workers over so that we're still getting the use of their time on something that we know we're gonna get paid for and we can afford to keep paying employees for. Furloughs, I've been hearing that term for many years, unfortunately, and, and for you know at least 10 years of threatened and actual shutdowns, easier said than done. For, I'm gonna sort of talk about two categories of workers, non-exempt, hourly workers. These are employees who are entitled to overtime under the Fair Labor Standards Act and state law. For these employees, you can put them on a furlough. You can stop their work and their pay at any time. There are really very few wage hour laws that would come into play there. They can be furloughed on a partial day basis. Uh, so, you know, working half days, they can be furloughed on a single day basis or, or an extended basis. 
where it becomes tricky is for exempt employees. These are salaried workers who are exempt from overtime. Typically, they can only be furloughed for entire work weeks. That is because an exempt employee must be paid their entire salary if they perform any work in a work week. So if I show up to work and work an hour on a Monday, even if I'm furloughed the next day for the remainder of the week, if my work week is Monday through Sunday, I need to be paid my full weekly salary that week. Um, so if you're going to furlough exempt workers, you want to try to time it so that they are furloughed for an entire work week. Uh, there are uh, you also want to make sure that employees, whether they're exempt or non-exempt, aren't performing any work during a furlough period, because that can also trigger problems. So for a non-exempt hourly worker, you, you just have to pay them for whatever time they spend working. So if they're on a furlough and for some reason they need to respond to emails or do some other work, you have to pay them for that time. But that time may be 15 minutes or an hour or however long it is. For an exempt worker, if they do any work during the furlough period, well, we're right back into you owe them their full weekly salary. I, you know, so I, I think to address that, some some companies are particularly cautious and and will cut off access to company systems to email. In addition to sending out notices to employees that if you're on a furlough, you know, you absolutely under no circumstances can you perform any work. Take that extra measure of cutting them off so they they can't be emailing if they have a company phone. You know, temporarily take away the phone or prevent access to it. Don't forget if an employee is on furlough for an extended period of time, it may trigger their right to unemployment benefits. It's a state by state issue. It also could trigger loss of benefits under health insurance. Or you might have to send them a COBRA notice. Again, it will depend on how long uh, they're actually out on furlough as well as the terms of your benefit plan. Sort of taking a step back from furloughs, you can reduce pay on a going forward basis, certainly for non-exempt employees. You can generally um, schedule them at whatever hours you want to schedule them or at whatever rate of pay subject to some legal requirements. So you can reduce pay. You can also reduce hours for non-exempt employees. For exempt workers, again, it's a little trickier. Um, typically, a going forward, you know, across the board, 25% reduction in pay during this upcoming period, that's probably allowed for exempt workers without threatening their exempt status under the FLSA. What you can't do is say, in this upcoming week, we anticipate you're only gonna be working 50%, so we're gonna reduce your pay by 50%. And the next week, we anticipate 75% work, so we'll reduce your pay by 75%. You can't do that for exempt workers, but you certainly could announce a one-time cost-saving measure of a, you know, a 10%, 25% pay cut. A few things to keep in mind, though. For non-exempt workers, they always have to make above the minimum wage. And if they're subject to a wage determination or, um, you know, they're a service worker under the Service Contract Act, you know, a reduction in, in pay can't bring them below those minimums under the, the wage determination of the SCA. And, and, and that would apply to Davis-Bacon, too, as well. And, as well as, laws. Yeah. Exactly, as well as Davis-Bacon. For an exempt employee, you still have to pay them the minimum weekly salary threshold. So $684 a week under federal law, if they're in certain states like California and New York, the minimum weekly salary might be a little bit higher. Um, but so someone making $1,000 a week, if you if suddenly they're working half time because of, a, because of a shutdown, you can't reduce their pay by 50%, which would bring them to $500. 
uh, a week because now they're below the minimum threshold. A few other you know, cost-saving measures to contemplate, you can require employees to take and use up their PTO, their, their paid leave. Not necessarily a cost-saving measure since you're still paying them, but it can draw down their leave bank, which, which certainly is a liability for the company on a go-forward basis. Sometimes that can be paired with a furlough. So if, if the shutdown occurs midweek and you want to furlough people, you know, starting the, the next full week, you could require them to use up their PTO Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of the week of the shutdown and then place them on furlough. Make sure that requiring someone to take PTO doesn't conflict with your own uh, handbook and, and leave policies. Also not the best tactic when it comes to employee morale. And so you want to be very careful with how that's rolled out and how that's messaged to employees. Employees can raise their hand and take a voluntary leave. So, you know, it's, it might be surprising, but some employees understand that this is sort of belt tightening times for everybody and may be willing to go out on leave, you know, without pay for the period of the shutdown. That That is okay. And for exempt employees who voluntarily take leave um, or voluntarily decide to take a couple days off per week, that may be an exception to when you can um, reduce someone's salary on a pro rata basis during the work week. So an exempt employee who voluntarily reduces their schedule from five to three days, um, you might be able to pay them three-fifths of their salary that week without violating the FLSA's salary basis rules. You should certainly consult with uh, Wage Hour Council before you take measures like that. Layoffs, kind of the last resort, if you're going to and you're forced to lay off uh, your employees, if you're letting go enough employees, so typically more than 50 um, at a single worksite, or if you're shutting down an entire worksite, be very careful that you are, are not triggering the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notice Act, the WARN Act, or state mini WARN Acts. Hmm. Um, because the Warren Act requires 60 days advance written notice before you conduct a layoff or plant closing. Those are sort of the, the main, I think, cost saving, cost reduction measures that, that contractors should be looking forward to. That's great, Josh. Um, to, to your point about, I, I really found it interesting, the idea of requiring the use of leave and the relation to, as you said, it's got to be consistent with existing policies, it, would the general rule be if the policies are silent? So it doesn't say whether the employer can or cannot ask or insist that employees use available paid time off, that the default would be if it's silent, they can do so, or would it be the opposite? I, Mike, I think you've, you've, you've hit it exactly right. If, if a policy is silent, the general presumption is that you can require employees to, to use up their PTO. It's something that an employer is voluntarily providing for the most part. It's generally not required by law. Um, I will note that some contracts, some government contracts may require paid leave, um, but state law does not require employers to provide any certain amount. And so generally you can tell employees when they need to take it. It's not very popular and it's not something that employers typically want to have to do but it, it is permissible. I, I think there are a couple states where you want to act a little more cautiously. So states like California in particular that have very protective laws when it comes to PTO and employees' rights to PTO, you wanna be a little more 
careful in in what you can require, but for the most part, yeah, as long as the policy doesn't grant employees an absolute right to take vacation whenever they want, you should be okay. And it's it, it's really not possible to divorce the guidance on handling employees with the way that contractors should be addressing the impact of a shutdown on their contracts, especially if there's going to be an effect that's going to warrant the filing of a, of a request for equitable adjustment on a fixed price contract or an increase in costs under a flexibly priced contract. And so to keep in mind this, this analysis on what is allowed or what is required under employment laws, if they're thinking about contractors should be thinking about that, obviously complying with the law, but also thinking about the implications in terms of their recovery of the related costs from the government. And so, Josh, what other, obviously you've covered a lot of the applicable employment laws already, but are there other employment law issues that contractors should be thinking about in the event of this anticipated shutdown? Yeah, a few others sort of come to mind. One is if you're going to be conducting layoffs or furloughs or reductions in pay or hours, just like with any other employment decision, you want to make sure that you are following internal policies and practices and you are analyzing and making sure that there is not a disparate impact on any particular protected category of employees. So in other words, you shouldn't only be furloughing the men or the women or the older workers. You want to make sure that your employment decisions are neutral and based on legitimate business reasons and not age, race, sex, or, or any other protected characteristic. The second is, you know, there's there's sort of a, a few government systems that kind of get shut down when there's a shutdown. So one is security clearance processing typically is delayed or even halted. So keep that in mind if you're actually still hiring, notwithstanding the shutdown, or you need to go through security clearance processes. Um, same with employment verification. So the e-verify system for new hires is typically offline during shutdowns. That does not mean that you don't have to comply with verifying an employee's I-9 the old-fashioned way. And so even if E-Verify is down, you still need to go through that sort of by-hand verification of the I-9s. Also, can't be done remotely anymore either. Um, uh, there used to be an exception during during the pandemic. You know, I-9s need to be verified in person if you're not using E-Verify. The other is just, I, I say, heightened risk of, of sort of False Claims Act or, or whistleblower-type claims. There may be billing and payment issues that come up as a result of everything that's going on with the shutdown and scrambling to figure out what's funded, what isn't funded. It could lead to a rise in whistleblower type claims. And you you want to be cognizant of that and promptly remedy, you know, sort of any discrepancies or issues that may arise when it comes to payments to the government um, or, or funding issues. Yeah, especially if you've got disgruntled employees that aren't getting paid, and then for some reason there's a mischarging to the government, I imagine that would be an issue that could get flagged. So th thanks a lot, Josh, and, and thanks, Chuck, to you as well and to Sarah. This has been very helpful. Hopefully, maybe unexpectedly, we can avoid the shutdown, but if not, uh, it's short. But thank you very much for talking through this uh, today. Thanks, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Bill here again. 
Thanks to Sarah, Chuck, Josh, and Mike for joining me today and for their timely insights and advice for contractors. Like you, we'll be following events on Capitol Hill to see what follows between now and September 30th and beyond. And that's it for this episode of Bonafide Needs. If you're interested in reading further on any of the topics covered in today's podcast, you can find links in our show notes. To keep up with government contracting and legal developments every day, subscribe to PubK at pubkgroup.com. For additional expert analysis and insights, you can find multiple timely and informative blogs at arnoldporter.com. You can find Bonafide Needs on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. You can help us reach more listeners by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review. Thanks for listening. For Arnold and Porter and the PubK Group, this is Bill Olver. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the PubK Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olfer and Tina Chen.